I'm always thinking of invasive support as a child is getting escalated on BiPAP. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the PedScript Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shankliff, a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the PedScript Podcast? Absolutely. PedScript is a collaborative educational podcast. We are working with critical care educators around the world to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We're hoping to add to the online community of PEDS ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. Yes, please reach out. We would love to hear from you. Do you want to introduce Dr. Agastia again? As you know, Nisha is an intensivist at Wesley Children's Hospital in Wichita, Kansas, after doing a critical care fellowship in Wilmington, Delaware. She's interested in QI, med ed, and we're excited to speak with her again. Yes. This is part two of a quick two-part series on asthma basics. Today, we're going to talk about non-invasive respiratory support in asthma, including how to care for children who require high-flow nasal cannula and BiPAP. That's right. I learned so much from this discussion. Let's get right to the content. Now that we've... So we talked about the basics of our medical therapy. Let's move on to the seemingly more urgent respiratory support. Uh, the patient in our case was hypoxemic despite receiving 60% FiO2 by face masks. How exactly are we going to escalate this patient or escalate asthma patients in general when they become hypoxemic? How do you like to do this? Most mild to moderately severe patients typically are not hypoxic. You can actually manage them without any supplemental oxygen. But as their disease process is sicker, there are a couple of processes that can happen in your, in your lungs that can cause hypoxemia. A couple of important things to think about is ventilation-perfusion mismatch. There's also a lot of intrapulmonary shunts that can be created because of mucus plugging. And also the process of just hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. So our pulmonary vasculature loves oxygen. Anytime they're deprived of oxygen, they typically will cause vasoconstriction and they will start shunting blood to other well-oxygenated regions of the lung. So it can be one or a combination of all of these that can make your patient actually require supplemental oxygen. The ways to deliver oxygen, like we know, you can give just humidified supplemental oxygen with your nebulized therapy. So your face mask, as you're giving your nebulized butyrol, can have some supplemental oxygen with it. You can give it through a low-flow nasal cannula. And also the most commonly used therapy now is the heated humidified high-flow nasal cannula. You can also add supplemental oxygen through it. That's excellent. I feel like severe asthma is one of those prototypical examples of VQ mismatch, you know, where that terminal bronchioles clamp down, you can't ventilate and you can't get oxygen in. And then that blood is shunted from right to left through the pulmonary circulation without getting oxygenated. You know, you mentioned all these different modalities, how you could support children who are having a severe asthma exacerbation. I want to focus in on heated high flow nasal cannula. You know, when do you think this would be a good choice? And really, how would you go, th- how would you think about choosing the initial settings for a patient? So heated high flow nasal cannula uh, comes in, there are different companies and different brands and depending on where you practice. So the most common, commonly used commercially available models includes Vapotherm and also the OptiFlow. Typically, institutions prefer to choose one over the other and keep one of those machines available for all patients in the ED and in the inpatient setting. 
High flow nasal cannula can be is typically started in those children who have increased work of breathing, so use of accessory muscles, and also those children who are tachypnic. The basis of heated high flow is typically carbon dioxide washout, so it helps with removing carbon dioxide from your airway dead spaces so that your patients can breathe less harder and less faster. You mentioned about asking initial settings. So these machines, depending on whatever commercial brand is available, can typically give gas flows up to 60 liters per minute. In pediatrics, because our patients come in different sizes, the rule of thumb is to start them at 1 to 2 liters per minute per kilo with a max flow rate above 40 to 60 liters per minute in children who are more than 60 kilos in weight. Nice. So we've got 1 to 2 per kilo in smaller kids, 40 to 60 liters per minute in teenagers, over 60 kilos. How how do you structure your sort of initial and reassessments after you start someone on Vapotherm or Optiflow or the high-flow nasal cannula of, of choice? Yeah, so typically what I do is once the therapy started, I stand by side and, you know, watch the child and see their respiratory mechanics over five to 10 minutes and see if there's an improvement. Look at their degree of tachypnea, look at their work of breathing, look at them every 30 to 60 minutes frequently and to kind of assess if you need to go up on your flow or if you need to use another therapy to deliver oxygen to these patients. So again, Going back to bedside medicine and frequent reassessment is is very important. So what I'm hearing is, you know, titrate the flow based on the worker of breathing and the FiO2, obviously, for oxygenation. Now, with high-flow nasal cannula, are you able to give the continuous albuterol through that device, or do you need something else? That's a great question. So continuous albuterol can be delivered through some of these devices when you have an attached aerogen, which is an aerosol generating device. So it's an extra piece that has to be attached to these commercially available devices. But again, we don't know in real studies that if the efficacy of the delivery of aerosol is is good or bad. Again, it's a mode to deliver your medication. Is your patient going to actually get it is something that we still do not know. Something interesting is that in fellowship where I trained, we're not able to actually deliver continuous albuterol through the heated high flow device. And where I'm currently practicing, we have figured out a way to actually deliver continuous albuterol. So again, you know, something that we need to look for and hopefully we'll have studies to actually get more data on this soon. Yeah, it seems like Correct me if I'm wrong. The literal missing piece is the aerogen in order to generate aerosol through the high-flow nasal cannula. Absolutely. And also to remember that because the gas that is going through is heated and humidified, there's also a question if the molecules of your albuterol that you're nebulizing is actually effective enough as it's getting through your patient. So that's one more component that you know we, we need to know more about. Oh, absolutely. That's so interesting. So we've learned a lot about high-flow nasal cannula. I feel like next we should move on to BiPAP. So we know that BiPAP is typically used to try to prevent intubation in these patients. We'll definitely do a deep dive into BiPAP on a future podcast. But you know, what are the typical types of BiPAP devices that you work with? And can, how do you think about setting those up for your patients with severe asthma? Yeah, so the commercially available devices are several in the market. Again, get familiar with what your hospital and your institution is using. Some of the devices that I've been exposed to are B60, which is a Philips Respironics device. It can be used for patients more than 20 kilos. 
trilogy is again a small portable device it can actually be used in the non-invasive and the invasive mode it's also is made by Phyllis Respironics team and can be used in patients 5 kilos or greater and also the servo the invasive ventilator has a non-invasive mode which you can actually use for BiPAP and children 3 kilos or greater in weight Again, there are several. These are just the three that I have used. So, you know, get familiar with what's in your hospital and what weight and what patient you could use them for. Oh, absolutely. And Trilogy definitely makes me think of the home ventilator, right? Yep. That is the, the most common home ventilator now that we're using. Okay. So we get our younger patient started on the servo or the V60 for his BiPAP. What is our next step in stabilizing this kid? So again, after you choose your device for BiPAP for bilevel positive pressure delivery, the next thing is to use an appropriately sized mask for these patients. So the most common full face masks that we use, it's called a scuba mask because it looks like a scuba diver, but they are full face masks that are used for infants and young children. And you can also just use a nasal face mask that kind of lives over your nose and your mouth in older teenagers. The goal of having these masks and putting them on is to make sure that there's minimal air leak and these have a good fitting on your patient's face and also to make sure that there's minimal pressure over the face to prevent any skin breakdown. So the recommended initial settings that you'll start with is an inspiratory positive airway pressure or your IPAP starts at 10 centimeters of water. The range is anywhere between 10 to 30. If you're escalating more than 20, you have to kind of start thinking, is this working? The second part you're going to set on your machine is the EPAP or the expiratory positive airway pressure, which starts at 5 centimeters of water, and it ranges between your 5 to 15. Again, you can deliver a continuous albuterol through these devices, so it's, it's more... Um, commonly used compared to the heated high flow with the continuous setup. Gotcha. So maybe easier, more standard to put continuous albuterol through it. We're setting an IPAP or inspiratory positive airway pressure between 10 and 30, and we're setting an EPAP or expiratory positive airway pressure between 5 and 15. Yep. So one question for you is, I've heard in the past about people using low peeps when, I guess, maybe managing like invasive ventilation in these patients with uh, severe asthma. You know, what is, in your experience, what's the role of using a very low peep in a BiPAP setting? Yeah, again, Zach, you brought up a controversial ICU topic where a lot of our intensivists fight about and argue about. And that is true. Um, there, There is a school of thought that in severe asthma and those children who are innovated is to actually put them on a low PEEP or no PEEP. There's a zero PEEP strategy because these patients have an intrinsic PEEP that they can generate from their own negative intrathoracic pressure. In BiPAP, typically, you do at least try to set a minimal PEEP of 5 in at least the smaller children. I have never set a PEEP of 0 on the BiPAP, personally. But the things that you have to kind of monitor is actually looking at how much tidal volume patients can generate based on your initial settings. So the initial tidal volume, we're looking at about anywhere between 5 to 10 mLs per kilo. Again, this is in the non-invasive mode. We're not talking about invasive mode with low tidal volume strategies. And this is because it's it, it, there's leak and there's some loss of pressure that happens through the device. 
you can actually this this number is calculated on your BiPAP device screen. It comes up as a driving pressure or the VT or the tidal volume is how it will show up as. And it's basically the difference between your inspiratory and your expiratory pressure that generates a driving pressure and a targeted tidal volume for your patient. Again, important to reassess your patients frequently, look at their work of breathing, tachypnea, listen to their respiratory um, exam, and their mental status. Um, is your patient actually getting better or are they still struggling to breathe hard? And are they reaching a point where they cannot compensate anymore? Gotcha. So if I'm understanding, you know, use BiPAP in the patient who's having that severe worker breathing, who maybe we're worried about, you know, quote, tiring out. You know, set up uh, inspiratory pressure somewhere around 10, uh, indexpiratory pressure somewhere around 5, and really monitor that tidal volume the child is getting to make sure you're not giving the patient either too much support or not quite enough support. I think a theme for the, our discussion today is that we need to be at these, this patient's bedside frequently to reassess them to make sure they're getting better to the therapy that we're giving them. You know, watch for that worker breathing, tachypnea, you know, put your stethoscope on the chest. Do you hear good breath sounds? Or are they wheezing or is it, or they even have a, like a rigid chest? Are they not moving air? And then of course, mental status can be a, can be a very worrisome finding if it's starting to get worse and worse. You know, how would you think about making a decision to intubate a child like this? What would you want to see before you pull the trigger on intubating them? Again, in taking into account your physical exam, so I'm, if I'm looking at a child who was breathing 40 times a minute and is tachypnic is now bradypnic and breathing, say, 10 times a minute, I, I would be worried that they've lost their ability to compensate. So these are the children to look for if they're having a decreasing respiratory rate associated with their, you know, mental status declining. Second thing would be, again, respiratory exam. So if your respiratory exam is really not improving on these methods and all your medications, maybe time to put them on an invasive mechanical ventilation support. I'm always thinking of invasive support as a child is getting escalated on BiPAP, kind of to keep that in the back of my mind and prepare the team if an emergency does occur. And also oxygenation issues. So if they have really more severe asthma based on the pathophysiology that we previously mentioned, are they getting hypoxic that you are not able to support them enough on your non-invasive support? So that's one of the other things to think of is to escalate therapy at that time. Oh, nice art of medicine, right? Kind of being at the bedside, getting that feel for which direction the patient is going. And just to, just to, I guess, poke the bear one more time, you probably wouldn't get a blood gas because you know it's going to look really bad. Yeah, absolutely. If, you, if, if, if your intern or your fellow did, then just, you know, maybe oh, yeah. put, they put it into perspective. Put it into perspective again. Me as a resident ordering a blood gas and then being like, but the CO2 is only 40, right? right. It looks terrible. I, I want to ask... I want to ask about a rumor in my residency. I've never seen it before, but I've heard that old school PICU attendings will end up giving like a bear hug to the child or really decompressing the chest manually. Does that does that make sense? Is this a concept that I don't really understand or don't have the words to describe? Yeah, I've heard of this anecdotal stories of uh, kind of more experienced intensivists doing it. I've never seen it happen. I would love to meet somebody who's done it and <laughs> okay, show me how validating. it helps. That's valid. Uh, I would love to learn more about the bear hug and decompressing the chest. Okay. If you've had this experience, email us, uh, podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to have you on. Moving on to sort of the sedation piece. I know these BiPAP masks are uncomfortable and severe asthma exacerbations are incredibly stressful. And I'm sort of wondering what 
what type of sedative you end up choosing for these patients and who needs a, a dex strip or something to help tolerate their mask? That's a good question. Typically, this comes up in our younger children and the toddler age who, you know, do get agitated because of the force of air that is pushing through the BiPAP machine. So dexmedetomidine intravenously is now commonly used at many centers in order to help them just give them a moderate level of sedation just to not knock them out completely, but at least calm them and relax the children so that they can tolerate these therapies better. An important thing is that dexmedetomidine doesn't really affect your respiratory drive, and that is why it is chosen amongst other medications, which, you know, benzodiazepines and opioids can depress your respiratory drive. So dexmedetomidine in that sense is pretty safe and well-tolerated and can be started intravenously after an initial, uh, sometimes there's controversy about giving bolus of, of this medication or just starting it right away. But typically my practice is to give them in uh, a bolus of, of a half a mic per kilo over 10 minutes and then starting them on an infusion to see if we can achieve a desired level of sedation in these children. Gotcha. So that makes sense. So, you know, dexmedetomidine we don't really think of as being a respiratory depressant. We want to be really careful about giving benzodiazepines or opioids because that obviously can cause respiratory depression. Say you didn't have access to dexmedetomidine, would something like ketamine or anything else, what else would you reach for? Yes, ketamine is the next agent to think of. It has double properties, so lower doses can help achieve some moderate level of sedation. But also, um, it can has it does have some bronchodilator properties by itself, so it can help with that as well. Something to think of is to make sure remember that. Ketamine is a general anesthesia medicine, so the doses that you choose are important. And also, one of the important side effects is increased respiratory and oral secretion. So, keeping that in mind as well for your patient. Oh yeah, I right. You might you might help bronchodilate them a little bit, but if they completely dissociate, then you might end up with a delirious patient with severe asthma. Right? That's that's interesting. Or I don't know. Can I can I ask about it an ID from an ID perspective? I feel like. If we're thinking, if they're on BiPAP, if we're thinking about intubation, we probably have a chest x-ray. We could either see a pneumonia or not see a pneumonia. A clinical practice that I've seen is for older teenagers with asthma that's so bad it's requiring BiPAP is just to start them on azithromycin for empiric treatment of mycoplasma pneumonia. Is this something that you see in clinical practice or do you think that there's some variability? I think there's definitely variability. Most hospitals now have a respiratory viral panel that that typically does pick up mycoplasma as one of the pathogens. Mm. So if you do have access to it, it is an expensive test. If you do have access to it, I think, you know, and if your center has an approach of getting them on every patient with the respiratory illness, that can give you some information. There is also talk in the pulmonologists think that there is some anti-inflammatory effects of azithromycin by itself. So there's definitely controversy and there's really no standard of practice for this. I think decisions will, will depend on the child and the patient by themselves. That makes sense. Yeah, the art of medicine, right, is kind of sprinkled in all along through the the talk of asthma. Definitely, and the controversies in it. (laughs) Well, maybe we need to follow up this episode with a a formal debate, but... I really can't thank you enough for joining us today and really walking through all of this in a really granular level with us. What what major take-home points or what do you think people really need to remember from this conversation? So I would say three take-home points because I think that's the most that our brain can handle after any, any talk or lecture. So one thing 
assess and reassess your patient. Stay by their bedside and reassess to see if what you're doing is helping or hurting them. Second thing is always have a plan of action, say plan A and plan B and plan C and your methods of escalation of therapy. And third thing is get familiar with what you have, resources you have in your hospital. Not every place can have a heated high flow set up for a child or a BiPAP mask that fits the child's face. So make sure you know what resources you're working with and and don't be afraid to ask for help. Well, Nisha, this has been awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. I look forward to having you on again in the near future for another critical care topic. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Grit. Please remember that everything discussed is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are also their own and do not reflect the official positions of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out pedscrit.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thank you again for listening.